I love that little statement that Steve slipped in there very quietly. He just slipped it in there. Did you hear it? You're a good, good God. You know, he's a good, good God. And you know, while we pray for a lot of people, and and you know, certainly our world is going through lots of things. We know that God is good all the time, don't we? We know that God is always working. I think we sang that this morning, didn't we? God is always working. He's always doing what he will do. And it's always leading us all. And I hope where we end this morning is leading us to that place of uh, when we will stand face to face with our God, our Saviour, our King. Because uh, that's where it's all going, isn't it? You know? There is a plan, there is a purpose, and it's all looking forward to the appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who's coming for his church. And, uh, and because of that, we're his children. This is, our, this is our thing, isn't it? We're his children. You know? And because we're his children, we are a people of prayer. We're a people who, who live in a life of absolute dependence upon our great God. We're a people who come before him, seeking him to work in us, to change us, to, to, to bring the conviction of his spirit upon our lives, to bring us to that place of repentance, to that place where we seek that better life in Christ, that place where we are hungering for his word, seeking for him to illuminate himself to us, that we might see and be drawn ever closer and by the power of his gospel isn't that the most important thing is the power of his gospel at work within our lives the cross of Jesus Christ the atoning sacrifice the great gospel message that we all know is the most important message that this world has ever received and it's the message that we carry in our hearts that our lives express and, and that's what we've been talking about over the past few weeks what does the gospel look like in us what does it look like in our lives? You know, because we are a people, and this is what I've been saying every week, we are a people, the people of God, the people of the God of truth, the people who are in fellowship with the living God, the people who are seeking his leading in our lives. We are a people who have become dissatisfied. Do you, is this true? People have become dissatisfied with a complacent so-called spirituality that has no effect within our lives. We are a people who are done with careless living. This is what it is to be a Christian. This is what the gospel looks like in the believer. A people who are done with careless living. A people who are longing to change from that, this world that wants us to be self-indulgent, but God wants us to be a self-denying people who know a life-transforming reality of to Christ working in us and through us that's what it is to be a christian and that's what we've been looking at so what does that look like in our lives um, what does it look like in our lives so in answering this question i want to give you a definition and this morning the subject is grace I mean, every week the subject is grace. But this morning it is, I want to look at that from this perspective. What does grace look like in our lives? And I don't know, it may not be what you think. Let me give you this definition. And this is a quote, okay? And the quote begins like this. The gospel message is the good news of God's grace. 
So it is important to know what grace is and to constantly seek to get a better view of what grace does in our lives. Grace is an essential part of God's character. Here's his definition. Grace is an essential part of God's character. Grace is closely related to God's benevolent love and mercy. Grace can be variously defined as God's favour towards the unworthy or God's benevolence on the undeserving. In his grace, God is willing to forgive us and bless us abundantly in spite of the fact that we don't deserve to be treated so well or dealt with so generously. Grace means that God's or God pours out his favour and his blessing on those who do not deserve it nor can they earn it. It describes... No, let me say first. We who deserve not his grace, nor can we earn his grace, but we who deserve rather his judgment, we who deserve his wrath, but rather God has given us forgiveness and now shows favour upon our lives. Romans chapter 5 in the first two verses, um, he tells us that it is through faith in Jesus Christ that we have been given access to the grace that we now stand in. I'll say it again. He says through faith in Jesus Christ, we have been given access to the grace that we now stand in. He says, so we are saved by grace and we stand in grace. But here's, here's the problem. I want to give, give you a couple of problems this morning. Here's the problem. Too many, for too many believers, yes, salvation is, we understand, it is by, it is by grace we are saved, but for too many believers, their awareness or their understanding of grace ends there. It ends at salvation. You know, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 tells us, for by grace we are saved through faith, right? You know? And what we seek to do, we get saved by grace, and then what we seek to do is to live for God to please Him by the way that we then live. And we lose sight of the power of God's grace at work within our lives. People begin to measure God's acceptance of them by the things that they do. Yes, we are saved by God's unmerited favour, but then we stand in our own behaviour. Oh, that rhymes. I hate it when that happens. But, the, but let me say it again. You know, we, 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 we are saved by God's grace or his unmerited favour, but then we try and live before God by our behaviour. And we don't understand that we are not only saved by grace, but we must stand in grace also, which means we must continue in grace. God would have us to continue in a grace relationship with him. In Acts chapter 13, the Apostle Paul, preaching to, the, to new converts there in Antioch, 
actually Paul and Barnabas are there and they're preaching to them. And then it says in, uh, in verse 43, it says that they then persuaded, once they had come to faith in Christ, they then persuaded these believers then to continue in God's grace. You know, Peter would say in his first epistle in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 12, he would say, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you now stand, and the grammar is which you now stand firmly in, the grace of God. And again, Peter would then say to uh, believers in light of the Lord's turn, return, there's that wonderful passage in 2 Peter chapter 3 where he's talking about the culmination of all things. He's talking about the return of the Lord. He's talking about this physical universe that so many people have placed their trust in. He's talking about this physical universe dissolving and coming into an end because God's going to bring in a new heaven and a new earth. He's going to establish his eternal kingdom. And Peter is talking about these incredible, this incredible future reality that awaits us. And then he says this, Therefore, beloved, this is 2 Peter 3.17. He says, Therefore, beloved, since you know that this beforehand, that the end is coming, this physical universe is going to end. And a lot of people don't think about that, do they? You know, well, it's just going to go on forever, Right? You know, a man lives like that. It's just going to go on forever. And, and so we move to the moon and, and now we're going to go back to the moon and then and we're going to go out to Mars. And, you know, uh, did you, and I, I remember when I was a kid, there was all this business of we're going to terraform. Is that the word? Terraf, terra, terra, terraform. Thank you, smart people. Terraform Mars and we're going to turn it into an inhabitable, plant, inhabitable planet. And, my, and my, my youthful mind was thinking, oh, you, that, that thing's out there, it's dead, it's freezing cold, it's had its time, and we're here, here on something that is alive and, and has, has, has life and purpose to it, and we want to abandon this and go and try and make that work. You know what I'm thinking? Why not stay here and fix this? Why not stay here and make this work? You know, this is what my mind is thinking. Then I become a Christian, and God tells me, no, it's all going to end. Because he's got something far better that we can't, that we can't construct, that we can't even begin to bring into existence. Behold, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And Peter is saying, you know this, you know this. I've told you this beforehand. And he says, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away from the errors of, by the errors of wickedness. But then he says this, but you grow in the grace. You grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And so we're saved by grace. We're saved by God's unmerited favour. We don't deserve it. We stand firm in God's grace. We stand firm in God's unmerited favour. We can't stand up ourselves. And we grow in grace. We grow in God's unmerited favour. But again, here's the problem. The problem is, and this is a problem that I think all of us experience, is that, yeah, God saves us. He blesses us. He provides for us. He keeps us. He keeps us according to his unmerited favour, his grace. But the world that we grew up in, the, the, the world that has, 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 in a sense, shaped us and formed us, it knows nothing of that. 
The, the world that we grow up in does nothing for us unless we merit it ourselves. Isn't that right? Isn't that how we've been raised by this world? God offers us, God offers us unmerited favor. The world looks at us and says, you can't have anything unless you merit it yourself, unless you earn it. And it becomes the path, the way of nobility in this world, doesn't it? You're not worth anything unless you earn it. And it starts when we're very, very young. Parents, you know, we offer incentive, don't we? We offer reward for behavior and it gets results. It really does. The only time that I ever got an A plus in primary school was when my mum said to me, Chris, if you get an A on your report at the end of this year, I'm gonna, I'll give you a tape recorder for Christmas. Now, most of you don't know what a tape recorder is. Well, many of us do. But my, that was a prize. We didn't... I, I, at school, at the school, in the back of our classroom, there was a tape recorder. And there was half a dozen cassettes there. And if you finished your work or if you achieved anything, here it is again, you got... 5, 10, 15 minutes maybe to sit down the back with big old headphones on and listen to the tape recorder. You know, the incentive was there, the reward was offered, and I rarely ever got there. But mum worked by the same principle, God bless her. Chris, if you get an A on your report at the end of the year, you can have your very own tape recorder. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness, she wanted an A, I gave her an A plus, you know, only time we ever saw that written down next to my name. She gave the incentive, I gave the result and she gave the reward, you know. Look, who, who remembers, who remembers standing amongst your classmen, classmates, for us it was Friday afternoon, on sports day? waiting to be picked by one of the two elite sports people in your grade who happen to be the captains, waiting to be picked to go into one of their two teams. Who remembers that? Oh, you, oh. Max, I'm sorry. <laughs> Look, I was never picked last. You know, um, thankfully I was never picked last, but I was also never picked first. I, I remember the tension. I remember standing there as the kids are slowly disappearing, you know. You know, but it's, it's the same thing, isn't it? You do well and you will be picked in the team. Don't do well, there'll be no applause for you. you know, that was cruel, wasn't it? That was so cruel. I hope they don't do it anymore. I don't know. I hope they don't do that anymore. But you know, it carries on through life. It still does today. Perform and you are rewarded. Don't perform and you don't get the prize. That's how this world works. Incentive, reward to make you perform. It's di dynamically, directly opposed to God's offer of grace to us. And it makes us hard, 
hard for us to always walk in that, you know. We see the same thing in the religious world, you know. In order to find God's acceptance, you know, certain quarters of the church have to do certain things in order to find acceptance, in order to experience forever on paradise earth, the Jehovah Witnesses have to knock on doors in order to escape the cycle of rebirth, trying to be good enough in order to get to that place called Nirvana. What do the Buddhists do? The Buddhists live a life of self-denial. In order to get to paradise, the Muslim world is trying to do a good enough good deeds to outweigh their bad deeds in order for them to get to paradise. In order to get to the highest heaven and to become a god, a Mormon has to do things distinctly Mormon. They have to become members of the Mormon church. They have to be baptized in the Mormon church. They have to receive the Holy Ghost by hands being laid on them by the Mormon elders. If a woman wants to have any eternal destiny they have to be married in a Mormon temple and they have to obey all of Mormons have to obey according to the words of wisdom given to them in the book of Mormon and they also have to knock on doors in every instance it's the same thing isn't it in every instance the instance of reward to make you perform Christianity on the other hand Christianity, on the other hand, teaches us that we can do nothing to earn or pay for our way into heaven. But rather believing, believing that he died and he rose again. And that in that death and resurrection, the perfect son of God paid the penalty for our seven, our, 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 paid the penalty for our sin. He redeemed us. And through faith in what he has done, we gain access back into the presence of God and the hope of heaven is born in our hearts. It's got nothing to do with our merit. It's all about his merit. It's all about who Jesus was. It's all about his righteousness. It's all about his sacrifice. It's all about the redemptive work of Christ justifying us. As I said to you a few weeks ago, the work of justification is an act. It takes place when you believe in the forgiveness of Christ. You are therefore justified. You are made right. You are made holy in the sight of God. And God will never again see you as unjust. You know, there are so many Christians. There are, well, the Catholic Church teaches us. That you are justified by the things that you do, by observing the Mass. And if you get to the end of your life and you haven't been fully justified by your obedience, then of course there is purgatory waiting for you. And you can then be finally cleansed in and through the, through the prayers of the saints or, or other things, you know. I was raised in that system. It it knows no absolute hope. Absolute hope is in the finished work of Christ. He is risen. It is finished. It is done. And through faith in him, you are justified. That's the grace of God. You can't do it yourself. You can't do it yourself. 
So what does this look like in our lives? That's the question, right? How does it, how does it work? Well, certainly I'm not striving and struggling, am I, to please him. But I am living in response to that incredible love that God has shown me. Will you turn with me to Titus chapter 2? I think Paul gives us the definitive answer to this question of what it looks like in our lives. Titus chapter 2 says in verse 11... Excuse me. He says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared unto all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify, uh, uh, excuse me, from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. The second chapter of Titus is a wonderful chapter. The second chapter of Titus is really describing what a healthy church looks like. The things that we've been talking about over the past half a dozen weeks. It addresses the faithfulness of the older men and the older women. The, excuse me. The younger women, the mothers, young men, the servants, you know. And all are exhorted to be faithful. And, and, and the essence of it is that as believers, the church, we should beautify the Christian faith because there's an unbelieving world around us looking on. And why? That's what he says. For by grace, again, verse 11. For by grace... The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared unto all men. And he's saying in this passage that the grace of God, yes, it saves us, has appeared unto all men. The grace of God, it it saves us, verse 11. The grace of God is keeping us, is what I said earlier. In other words, it's teaching us to live godliness in verse 12 and verse 13. God's grace is ultimately going to take us home. As it says, we are looking to the appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. He is saying it is grace from beginning to end. He is saying that is what grace should look like in us. We should be adorning Christian, us. We should be adorning the beauty of God's grace, the beauty of God's salvation to all people. So once again, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared unto all men, And when he says that it's appeared unto all men, most certainly the Apostle Paul is talking about the grace of God that it was embodied in the person of Jesus Christ, isn't he? You know, because that's how John described Jesus. You got that wonderful in the Gospel of John in the first chapter where John would say, and the word became flesh. Don't you love that? In verse 14 of 1 John, it says, and the word became flesh. So John chapter 1, John's confusing, isn't he? And the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us and what we beheld, his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father. And he says this, Jesus Christ, full of grace and truth. He has appeared unto all men. 
We read in John 3.16 that incredible verse that, that, that we all know so well. For God so loved the world that he did something, didn't he? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe on him will not perish but shall have everlasting life. And let's never forget verse 17. For what does it say? For God did not send his son into this world. This is grace. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that he, through him, the world would be what? Saved. God gave so that we don't perish Not to condemn, but to save all those that believe, that's grace. How does it look in us? How does it look in us? Well, I'm asking you, how does it look? Think back. Will you think back with me? And will you remember when he apprehended your heart? When he apprehended your heart and he brought forgiveness to your souls. Do you remember Do you remember the cleansing of soul? Do do you remember the burden lifting? Do you remember being set free? Condemnation gone. Guilt gone. And all of this is replaced by a hope flooding into your soul as God's grace washes over you and brought you peace. Peace. And it costs you nothing. It looks like that. It, it, it looks like that, you know. But it, but it continues in our lives. And that's when he says there, look, it teaches us. Look at verse 12 with me. It says, teaching us, this is what grace does, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously and godly in the present age so the past sense that he saves us present sense that he's working in us and he is teaching us through God's grace Uh, who loves Spurgeon I know he's hard to read sometimes Spurgeon said it like this he said he who has stood before his God convicted and condemned with the rope around his neck is the man to weep for joy when he is pardoned, to hate the evil which he had been forgiven of, and to live to honour the Redeemer whose blood by him has been cleaned. Told you he's hard to read. But the image of someone that is standing there upon the gallows with a rope around their neck and they're guilty and grace comes along cuts the rope, takes it off them, even though they're guilty, and sets them free. How do you respond to that? What does that look like? How do you walk away from those gallows that condemned you? You don't walk away with head hung low, do you? You walk away rejoicing. You walk away rejoicing, desiring to follow and to, and to, and to live in relationship with that, that one that has set you free, forever indebted, So many people think that if you preach just grace, 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 grace like this, then people are going to start living careless lives. Not so. 
Not so. The power of God's grace to save us doesn't simply abandon us to try and do it ourselves or trying to be what we want to be. No, the power of God's grace continues to work in us and begins to instruct us according to the great love that has been shown us. It's what love does. It's what love does. In fact, that word teaching, when it says that the grace of God teaches, literally, it's the idea of disciplining us, correcting us. Think about it. If God's grace has saved us through faith in Jesus Christ, who bore our sin and the consequence of that sin upon the cross, only a heartless fool would think that they could then continue in that same sin. To think that they could continue in the same sin, in the very things that drove the nails into his hands. That person doesn't know grace. That person doesn't know the power of God's salvation. But rather, it teaches us. This grace is teaching us what? To deny, it says there, ungodliness and worldly lusts. They're all around us, aren't they? They are all around us all the time. This this is what grace looks like. It looks like us denying those things that are constantly seeking or constantly being paraded before us. No matter where we are in this world, it's there. Ungodliness and worldly lusts seeking to mould and shape you. It's like pressure from the outside, isn't it? Pressure forcing you, trying to mould you into a shape. But we as Christians have received the grace of God, have the power of God within us, seeking to transform us from the inside out. And so when those outside pressures are there trying to push you and shape you to be like everybody out there, what does grace look like? It looks like you and I denying those things. Denying those things by the power of God's grace. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, describes those things. It says this, Do not love the world or the things of the world. You know this passage. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, here is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world, he says, take note of this, is passing away and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Every single day, every single day, you and I, Christian, are being instructed by grace. You know it, don't you? Every single day, when selfishness and pride and lust and crude vulgarities are put before you. Your relationship, this is how it's teaching us, your relationship with Jesus Christ won't abide with those things being, being considered acceptable in you. you. You just can't have it, can you? 
That's the grace of God at work. And you deny it, and grace is doing that. You're not comparing yourselves to other people. That's not your standard. You're not being holier than thou. You're not trying to show anybody up. You're not being legalistic, but you are being taught by grace, and you know it. You know how you know it? You know it because when you do fail, and when you do fall, And you do let those things slip in. You don't justify it. You don't justify it. You don't don't start making excuses. You don't accept it by saying, oh, well, that's what everybody's doing now. No, no. What do you do? This is what tells us. This is what tells us that it's grace that is teaching these things. You know what you do? You go running straight to the throne of grace, don't you? You go running straight to the throne of grace and you're seeking God's forgiveness. Knowing what? You're knowing that he is faithful. You're knowing that he is just to forgive you of all your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You know he will never stop teaching you. He will never stop cleaning you. He will never stop perfecting you. Remember what I said last week. This is what the Christian life is. God has justified you. He sees you as holy, righteous, perfect but practically in your humanity you're down here but every day as God's grace is teaching you instructing you you are making choices that are bringing you up closer more like him you're never going to get there because you know most of this work I say this all the time is going to happen in a moment in the twinkling of an eye you know when he comes for us and we are changed, the Bible says, metamorphosized. As the scripture says, we don't know what we're going to be. But what we do know is that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we will behold him as he is. But right now, we've been taught, we've been instructed by grace, by the benevolent love and mercy of God teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldliness. That's what grace looks like. That's what the gospel looks like in us. We live soberly, that verse says. What does that mean? We live soberly. It's talking about a life that is a life of self-control. It's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's the last fruit listed. Self-control. We're living in a self-controlled manner. Not giving ourselves over to every variant passion and desire that seems to sweep past us. It's talking about wisdom. It's talking about character. This is what living soberly is. It doesn't mean being stoic and, and you know, boring in life. Christian life is the the best life in the world because it's a life you're created to know and experience. Do you guys have fun? You're the most fun group of people I know. know. Of course you do. No, it's not that. But it's just not living carelessly. It's living righteous, as it says there. It's living godly lives, as it says there. Simply letting our standards be determined not by the pressure of this world, but be determined by what God says to us through his word. 
what does this mean? What does grace look like in us? It means that we are a people who live a life of devotion, a life of holiness. We live in his presence. I remember, I remember an old saint, um, she's gone to be with the Lord now, and she used to tell me um, over and over again, Chris, I just want to practice the presence of God. You know what she was saying? She was saying this. She said, I just want to live in his presence. I want to know that he's constantly there with me. I want to know that he's always working. He's always desiring to do something. I want to know that he's giving me choices every day to choose righteousness, to choose holiness, to follow after his example. That's what grace looks like as you are instructed in it. Um, I'm out of time and I haven't got to the end of the passage. What does it mean? I guess that's what we've been saying each week now. This life of devotion, this life of holiness. We're a people who, yeah, we humble ourselves before him. And we do, we acknowledge our complete dependence upon him. You and I, Christian, we earnestly, we wholeheartedly desire his presence and, 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 and his purpose in all aspects of our lives. We allow him to search us. We allow him to expose those things that have just got to be done with. You know, so Christian, we're seeking this restoration. We're not wanting anything to come between us and our great God and Saviour. So there's a hungering in us. That's what, the, that's what the Beatitudes are all about. There's a hungering in us for the likeness of Christ. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Longing, as I said earlier, for the illumination of God's truth to our heart. Grace looks like that. It looks like that in us. And we live like this before this world. But we have hope. This wonderful hope that comes with it. Because, yeah, there's the past. There's God saves us. And, yes, there's a present reality. We stand in that. We have been instructed in that grace. But there's this incredible hope. And I wish I had more time. Because he says there in that 13th verse, This is what grace does in us. We are looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ. If you are a child of God, being instructed by the grace of God, this hope is in your heart. Your God is coming for you. You haven't been abandoned. He said, Jesus said to the disciples, I won't leave you as orphans. I'll send you another. But you need to know, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. I'm coming again. I've got to prepare a place for you. I wouldn't tell you if it wasn't so. Where I go, I'll come again. And I'll receive you unto myself. I'm coming again. And that's the whole hope of, what is our hope in? It's the fact that he is coming for us. What is there else to hope in this world that is passing away? With fanciful ideas of, of reforming another planet so far out there. Think about it. That's our hope. 
You know, it says looking for the blessed hope. That word looking, it has the idea of, uh, the idea of, um, it's, it's, it's a continuous state of, of heart and mind. But it's, have you ever had someone come to your place? No, they say to you, they say, hey, Chris, I'll be around your place. I uh, haven't, you know, haven't seen this person for a long time. I'll be around your place sometime in the afternoon. Can't tell you exactly when. And so what do you do? You know, your best friend's coming to see you. You haven't seen them for years. And so you spend your time getting your house ready, right? You clean it up. You make it look presentable. But as you're cleaning up, because you don't know exactly when he's coming, you just know he's coming sometime this afternoon. That's what this looking has the idea of, of stretched neck. You know, and have you found yourself waiting for that person? And you know, and you're getting things ready. You're making sure things are good for the visit. At the same time, you're out the window, you know. Your ear is tuned. You're waiting to hear that car pull in the driveway. And you're looking around the corner. This is stretched neck. This is looking for the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. That is the clearest definition of who Jesus Christ is. He is your God and Saviour and no less. And he's coming for you. That's our hope. And until that arrival, Christian, God's grace is teaching us to live this life. What does verse 14 say? Who gave himself for us. He gave himself instead of us. That's what he did. He took your sin to the cross and died in your place. He gave himself for us that he might redeem us. Redemption. He paid the price for us. Like he brought us out of the slavery of sin by paying the price of his own perfect life. And more than that, see, we don't understand this. We think that it's just a physical life that died upon a cross. No, it's so much more than that. He gave his eternal life to pay for an eternal separation. And there's a sense that Christ himself experienced upon the cross. And we can't understand this. We can't enter into this because only he could he experienced hell for you and I for eternity. And I can't begin to comprehend the depths of that. As he took your sin upon him, he died instead of us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself, get this, his own, your Bible might say peculiar. My Bible says his own special people. We are the very object of his love. Peculiar, special, weird, that's not what it's saying. But peculiar, special people in the sense that we are unique. We're unique people. We're not weird people. And we're expressing something that is gloriously beautiful to this world around us. Because the grace of God has appeared, hasn't it? Bringing the salvation of God to all mankind. And where is it seen? It's seen in you and I. We are to adorn ourselves with the beauty of this grace. 
that this world will see it. See, here's the problem. There's so much of the church today that is doing everything it possibly can to be just like the world. The Apostle Paul said, it's no longer I that live, but it's Christ that lives in me. No, 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 we need to be different. We are different. Yes, we are peculiar, but we are gloriously saved. And we are wonderfully being instructed by the grace of God which should make us, as he says, zealous for good works. Amen? Amen. Am I out of time? Can we quickly just pass the communion elements around? Ken, Ken, would you mind? These are, as I said to last, last week, you weren't here for this, the second service last week. These are COVID, COVID-specific communion. They've, been, they've been not been touched by any human hands. You can peel the top off and there's a wafer under there. Enough um, said of that. Have you got that there? Jesus said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That's the stumbling block for many people because they don't believe they're sinners. They don't believe they need forgiveness. But the Bible is very clear. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. None is righteous. No, not any. We all need forgiveness, don't we? That's God's grace. So let's bow our heads. Let's examine our hearts. If we are Christians, and I don't say these words to condemn, but if we are Christians and we've allowed this world to shape us, to form who we are, if we have allowed this world to teach us that the passions and the desires and the goals of this world to become ours, then we need to ask God to forgive us. We need to ask God by his grace to shine the light of his conviction and his redemptive purpose to change us. Lord, in heaven, search our hearts. Lord, forgive us of these things. I pray this morning that you would just refresh our love for you. Remind us of that first love. Just how wonderful it was to know that you've forgiven us when this world offered us nothing.
that in this place, Lord God, right now, you bring us back to the foot of the cross to hear those words, Father, forgive him. Forgive her. They haven't known what they've been doing. They don't know what they've done. But more importantly, to hear those words, it is finished. How wonderful it is to know that you've done everything for us. To to be called a child of God. To be forgiven. To know the power of your grace at work within our lives. To know that we have great need. Great need of you to show us the way. Thank you, Father, you've shown us the way. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you've shown us the way by laying down your life for us. Giving us a vision of heaven, a hope of glory, the promise of your coming the power of your redemptive work to change us, to transform us, Lord God. Thank you for it. Thank you for this bread that reminds us of the price of your life that was given, of your body that was sacrificed. Let's take this bread together, this bread of life that now lives in us and through us, the finished work of our Saviour. Thank you, Lord. And this precious, precious blood that washes over us. Thank you for your forgiveness. Let's take the cup together. Thank you, Lord. Amen.